If you are looking for even more help and guidance on your breakup, I have a few different options for you to take your healing to the next level. I have four different online courses depending on what stage of the breakup that you're in from beginning all the way into moving on after heartbreak, or you can bundle all of my courses together and use the code podcast to get $25 off my course bundle. I also have my 30 day no contact challenge to help hold you accountable in going no contact with your ex. And we have our free Facebook group, Healing Hearts Club, where you can connect with other people going through breakups all over the world. To learn more about any of these resources, head to the show notes where you can learn more about my courses, take the quiz to figure out which course is best for you, or join the Facebook group. And don't forget to use the code PODCAST to get $25 off my course bundle. Welcome to the Heal Your Heartbreak podcast with your host, Breakup Bestie, aka me, Kendra. Breakups are hard, but you don't have to do it alone. Each week, I will be taking you through a different topic as it relates to breaking up, healing from heartbreak, growing in your single life, dating, and getting back into happier and healthier relationships. The goal of this show is to provide support, hope, tips, and to remind you that above all, this too shall pass. Welcome back to another expert episode of the podcast. I am so honored that this guest came on the show. Today I'm interviewing psychologist Guy Winch. You probably know him from his TED Talk, How to Fix a Broken Heart which, by the way, has over 8.3 million views on YouTube. So obviously a message that really resonates for people. But as many of you know, I have my private Facebook group with, I think we have over 3,000 women at this point in there. And I kept seeing people post this video from Guy Winch. And I finally watched it and was so blown away by how well he puts, you know, the experience of having a broken heart, how he uses research, his clinical experience with his private practice, and for a long time wanted to ask him to come on the show and finally decided to, and he so graciously said yes. So we get into the experience of heartbreak today and why it is so painful and why we as a society don't recognize how painful it is in a lot of ways. We talk about the obsession, why we obsess so much on our ex or on the thought that we're going to get back together or we fixate on this idea of closure. And he has so much great practical advice on how to deal with the obsession, why our ex, you know, seems to have moved on a lot faster than us. So there's just so much goodness in this episode. And if you haven't already watched the TED Talk, I linked it in the show notes. He also has a podcast where he does live therapy sessions and he explains it at the end and it sounds fascinating. Definitely something I will be listening to. And he also has his book, How to Fix a Broken Heart. So without any delay, I would love to introduce you to Guy Winch. Welcome, Guy, to the Heal Your Heartbreak podcast. It is such an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you so much, and it's my pleasure being here. So I mentioned to you before we started recording, but my community is such a big fan of your, specifically your TED Talk, which has millions and millions and millions of views. And I just love all of your teachings on on heartbreak and 
really excited to dive into your thoughts around heartbreak. And my first question for you is what drew you to look closer at, at heartbreak in your private practice when you were working with people? Well, I guess the thing that, that was most stark for me was just the amount of emotional pain that people were in. People were gutted and devastated and in such emotional anguish. And yet everything, sorry, that was overstated. And yet almost everything (laughs) they did was not good, was not good for their recovery. And I just saw them doing one, it's hard to call it a mistake if you don't know it's a mistake, but doing one thing after another that's going to set them back, really being confused about what's going on with them. They realized they were acting so out of sorts, so unlike them, and yet they didn't understand why and what was going on. So when you see so much anguish, and it's so common, so you do see it a lot as a therapist, and people have so few tools to deal with it, and yet I knew the science and I knew there were things. I I decided to write a book and to, to do this TED Talk so I can really start to hopefully help people and give them some tools and some hope. I think that's so important. And I remember when I started this podcast and my community, I was actually having a conversation with my dad about my plan. And I remember him saying that I don't think you'll get enough people who are interested in learning about heartbreak. And I thought, (laughs) wow, you know, that's the issue because every single person is going to have their heart broken. I mean, for the most part, you know, some people, you know, end up with their first love, but it's such a universal thing. And it is, it's one of the hardest things I think a lot of people will go through in their entire lives. And why do you think as a society, we don't give enough credit to how much heartbreak hurts? First of all, there are a few reasons for that. I'm going to get into them. I do want to say about the, your dad's comment. I was smiling when you said it because in my own podcast, Dear Therapists, we do live therapy sessions Myself and my co-host, Lori Gottlieb, we do live therapy sessions with people. We have 40 episodes. We're taping our third season now. And our most popular episode by far is the first one we have did, which, which was about heartbreak. That always strikes a chord because who's not familiar with it? Who doesn't have a friend or a family member going through it right now kind of thing? So why don't we take it seriously as a society? There are numerous reasons. Number one, we tend to associate it with the young. We forget that heartbreak hurts just as much at any age. And that's something we do tend to forget. And one of the reasons we forget that is because in general, we have a poor memory for visceral experiences. One, when we're not freezing, it's really hard to remember what it's like to be freezing. When we're not really hungry, it's really hard to remember what it's like to be truly starving. When you've just finished eating and I say to you, what would you like for breakfast tomorrow? You'll be like, oh, I can't even think of it now. Just because viscerally, it's difficult to connect to what that state of hunger would be. It's like that with pain as well. And there's something good about that, that we tend to forget how much something hurt once we're over it. But the other part of it is that there's this general approach to difficult emotions as things we need to get over as just, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, shake yourself out of it. Whatever the thing is, we think people can just take an emotion and just put it to the side or like, you know, if you're really strong, you just like, you know, tough up a lip and, you know, and then you just keep on going, stay calm and carry on kind of thing. And that's absolutely untrue, but that's still the pervasive sentiment out there. And so it's not taken seriously. 
I hear that a lot from people who are going through breakups. They feel like they can't necessarily even go to their friends because either their friends, you know, they haven't gone through a breakup in a long time, so they can't relate or they just are told, you know, start dating someone new, you know, be like, get over it already kind of a sentiment. And so I think, and you know, when you were talking about the thing with pain, I had a baby actually just four months ago. And it's incredible that I almost like, I can't put myself back into, you know, the pain of being in labor. And, you know, there's obviously a biological reason for that, but I think specifically with heartbreak, which, you know, I'll ask you a little bit more about the pain of trying to reach out to an ex and being hurt. You can forget about it in a matter of days, I would say. You might remember that it was painful the last time. But you are so driven, you're so obsessed with trying to get that person back or get a piece of them or a piece of what it feels like or some kind of comfort of contact. Even if you remember the pain, you will go forth despite it. And that's the thing. People will do the same thing that hurt and hurt and hurt over and over again. And they're just so desperate. And the reason they do it is desperation. Even if they recall and they think, yeah, this is going to suck, they're not going to respond. But if there's a tiny chance, I have to try because I, that, I'm that desperate. And I know, you know, one of the reasons that you talk about in your TED talk is this connection between going through heartbreak and overcoming addiction. And I was curious when you were making that connection, did you also work with people who are going through addiction and notice that similarity or where did that connection come from? So one of the things I've always done as a psychologist is I always spend time reading the research articles, the journal articles, the peer reviewed ones of studies. And the studies is what alerted me to that because they do functional MRI studies. Functional MRIs are like a regular brain scan. But instead of just taking a still image, you're asking somebody to think about something or to do something mentally. And then you're looking at what's happening in the brain as they do that. And the functional MRI studies show that the brain looks very, very similar. The similar mechanisms in the brain are getting activated when opioid addicts, when heroin addicts withdrawing from heroin as when heartbroken people are in the first throes of withdrawing from their ex, as it were, that the brain looks very, very similar and that similar mechanisms are in play. So that's a neuroscience finding, and it's been you know, repeated numerous times. And when you read that, it suddenly starts to make so much sense about why people behave in such strange, for them, manners. Because when you think about a heroin addict who's jonesing for a fix, nothing they do would surprise you. Oh, they prostituted themselves. Not a surprise. They stole from their family. Not a surprise. They did this because you can understand the level of craving and desperation heroin addiction causes. We do not have that same understanding about heartbreak, but the desperation and pain are the same. And we're not thinking about it as heroin. So we don't think about it. If this is a drug that's bad for us, we think this is the solution to all our problems. And so people are desperate and they behave in sometimes in very desperate ways that they feel so ashamed about later, or they just have trouble understanding, but the brain really explains what's going on there, that that level of desperation, they will truly do anything. When I first, you know, read about this and found this out, it made so much sense to me because this was actually a huge reason I started Breakup Bestie is because I'm in recovery from addiction. I just celebrated nine years of sobriety. Oh, congratulations. 
Thank you. And I just anecdotally noticed the similarities for me between getting sober, you know, the first 30, 60, 90 days, even Mm -hmm. the first year, how difficult it was Mm -hmm. and how I had to avoid certain aisles in the grocery store. I couldn't go certain places Mm -hmm. because the craving was just too intense. And then going through my first sober heartbreak, it, you know, it forced me to, you know, really, I, there was no, nothing let's to find some, Yeah, Let's find coping mechanisms because, yeah. you know, alcohol is no longer one of them. Exactly. So I started noticing the, the similar feelings, but what I noticed was there was a huge lapse in support. So when I came out and said, I need help getting sober, family members jumped in. There was a treatment program I was able to go to. There were you know, thousands of support groups for me to attend to, you know, there was, I was able to like, this happened when I was in college, I got kind of a pass for certain classes, but you know, when I had my heart broken, you can't call into work and say, you know, I need medical leave. So it's, there's such a difference in support levels for someone who is asking for help with addiction and someone who says, I just had my heart broken into a million pieces. For all kinds of reasons, by the way, and one of them being, let's say, let's talk about friend support, because social support is a really, really key ingredient for recovering from heartbreak. You really need that social support. Now, it works a little bit differently for men and women stereotypically, because women often require that support or deliver that support by actually talking about things. And for men, it can actually be about, hey, dude, I know you're in a bad place. Let's go shoot some hoops and watch a movie and that'll be my way of supporting you kind of thing, which does actually work sometimes because, you know, just, you know, in terms of the stereotypes of things. But the problem is many times the friends didn't like the person or even said, you know, I'm seeing red flags or even had a bit of a falling out or something around it. And so you're asking support from people who, many of whom might've said to you, I don't think this person's good for you. And said, and then they're going to be much less forthcoming with support. It's very difficult for a friend to say, oh, I think this is not the best person, but if you're going forward anyway, don't come crying to me when it doesn't work out, but you do need to come crying to them because they're a friend. And if they are, they do need to put those thoughts aside. You know, if any friends are listening to this and somebody comes yeah. to you heartbroken, then you warn them and warn them and warn them. Do the victory, uh, you know, circle a little bit later, the victory lap a little bit later about I told you so for right now. Just be there and be supportive because they're not in a place to hear that, you know, you warned them, you told them so. But it is difficult, you know, in that way. And there's a statute of limitations that tends to run out. I wrote about that in, in How to Fix a, Heart, a Broken Heart book that, you know, there's just this time where your friends think you should be over it and their sympathy starts to drop off very drastically from there on. Now, that's just an arbitrary time in their head. They might not even have articulated it to themselves, but suddenly they're less patient to hear this story again. Yeah. And I think that does, you know, I'm not typically hearing from friends. I'm hearing from the heartbroken person. And I think the statute, of, they feel the statute of limitations too especially, you know, especially for someone that maybe had a six month whirlwind romance and here it is eight months later and they think, how can I possibly be heartbroken for longer than the actual relationship was? And I don't know if you've heard about this. I think it came from the show Sex in the City, but there's there was this rule that you should be heartbroken for half the amount of time that you were in the relationship, which I think is, you know, 
not real by any means, but I think people feel that pressure that I should be over it by now. So therefore I'm not going to, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to be that person that's always negative, but in reality, that is what you need to help your healing process. Right. That rule doesn't have a lot of basis in any kind of science that I'm aware of. Probably some kind of rule of thumb for people to just gauge. But the problem is that six-month relationship can mean very different things to different people, depending on who they are in the context of their lives. Somebody who's a serial dater, you know, can probably move on from that much more quickly than someone who just never tends to date and finally found this one person and it suddenly started going somewhere. And for them, they were full of hope and they thought, oh, this is finally it. I get to like, you know, join my friends and have a partner and all of that. And so for them, this is so much rarer. The stakes are so much higher. It can be so much more devastating when that ends, as opposed to the person who's out and about in the serial data. And okay, yeah, it's going to be very painful, but it's not as if they're going to have a hard time finding other people to date when they're ready. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you ever see that when someone goes through something traumatic, like a heartbreak, it can bring up past either past trauma. It can bring up, you know, areas in like things in other areas of their lives that they might not have worked on, whether it triggers, you know, their relationship with their father or something like that. And that can make it harder to get over the heartbreak, even though it's beyond the actual heartbreak. Okay. So there are a couple of, you know, things then number one, the pain people are in at the beginning is so severe. It really kind of can throw you, it can look very much like clinical depression. Because if you think of those first days for some people who can't get out of bed, who are just crying in bed, they don't want to brush their teeth, they don't want to eat, they don't want to drink, they don't want to do anything. They just, the pain is so severe for them emotionally that that they can't function. And that, that starts to look very much like severe clinical depression for a while. So certainly that can kick off a whole mental cycle that can, you know, if they have would be disposed to depression if they had it earlier, it can suddenly kick those things. The other part of it is interesting because as part of the due diligence you have to do at the end of a relationship when you're in the emotional place to do it, is to look at what went wrong, what you learned, what you want to take from that, what you want to discard, you know, where you would like to do things differently, what compromises are you okay with, which ones are you deciding not to do in the future? There's a lot you can learn from relationships when you're in the place mostly to do that, and that's not obviously right right away. So it's appropriate to actually think about your other relationships, to think about other things that worked or didn't work. The danger is if you're going down the rabbit hole of just replaying the, you know, the greatest hits of pain in your life, which some people do, it just reminds them of that terrible moment and that terrible moment. And that that's when if you're indulging that line of thinking or that line of associating, that can really spiral you down. And, in, and indeed, you know, when I hear of people who've been in a relationship for six months and are not over it eight months later, I'm not saying that they should be over it because depending on the circumstance, that might have been especially devastating for them. But it does usually imply that there's something about the recovery that they're not addressing aggressively enough, that they're not looking forward enough, that they're still spending more time looking backwards than forward. Yes. Yeah. I think, too, I don't know if you noticed this, but. I think people who went through breakups during COVID, do you find that they took, I've just seen that people typically have been taking a little bit longer when they went through a breakup during COVID because they didn't necessarily have as much of the social support, couldn't go out, couldn't, you know, do the things that would normally make them feel happy and distract them. Well, and they're probably not in the best place over COVID 
because the global pandemic and, you know, either financial stresses that many people have gone through, losses that many people have gone through. I mean, the pandemic did really, you know, shower us all with losses and with, you know, just our way of life is what we lost at the beginning and a lot of anxiety and uncertainty and fear and one wave after another after another. So, you know, a lot of people were already kind of a little bit on the edge of dealing with, you know, unusual stresses over the pandemic. Now add heartbreak on top of it. It's not going to be easy. And especially because, you know, the social support, you want a hug, you might not be able to get a hug. You might not have been able to get a hug. Even a simple hug, the thing that's most obvious, I'll just see my friends, they'll give me a hug and I'll cry in their arms. You couldn't do. So, of course, it made it much more challenging to move on. Yeah. You know, I want to talk about your thoughts on this idea of closure, because I think that's something where even if someone was given a reason why the you know relationship ended and sometimes, you know, the partner will just say I'm done and not really give a reason, but oftentimes they do give a reason. But you talk about how even if they do give a reason we still obsess on there must be more. There has to be, you know, some reason. You talked about one of your patients who, you know, went, there must have been something wrong with the weekend before. I must have done something wrong that led to that. When someone is obsessing on that reason, you know, how can you get them to see that that reason, even if they found out the exact reason why the breakup happened, it's still not going to solve the problem. So first of all, here's the problem with that with the premise of wanting the reason, when you're experiencing incredible pain, you would kind of like the reason for that pain to be dramatic. You know, because if you're that hurting that much, something huge and dramatic must have happened. And unfortunately with heartbreak, it's very rarely dramatic. Yeah, those couples who have one big fight and impulsively break up or this one cheated on the other and it just stormed out and yeah. But for most people, it's just they drifted emotionally, or they never quite got to that level of commitment, or they loved, but they weren't quite in love, or they were together and they grew in different directions and they just felt that there just wasn't enough, you know, shared interests or shared things in their life at that moment. All these things, normative and just uninspiring in terms of like, you know, dramatic reasons. And so, we search for no, but there's got to be more than that, number one. But the other thing that happens, and this is the more common, and people need to understand this because I think not getting this has set so many people back. Okay, maybe you were dating somebody for a couple of weeks and they broke up, etc. But if you were in a relationship, any serious relationship that the person, one of the people is thinking of leaving, usually, unless there is terrible hatred going on already, which already, which is usually there's not at that point, they are going to plan it and they are going to decide when to leave and they're going to be strategic about it in several ways. Number one, in how it serves them, but often in terms of kindness to the other person. Well, I want to leave, but now it's November and then the holidays are coming up and I don't want to do that to them. So let's just go to their families for the holiday, etc. Or they have their big presentation and I want to wait till right after because I don't want to fuck them up before. Well, can I use language? I should. Yes. I not. Okay. Yes, okay. you can. <laughs> okay. But, you know, so people have all these often very clear reasons. And then what they do is, okay, so I'll leave after the holidays. I'll leave after the presentation. I'll leave after her 35th birthday, blah, blah, blah. And then they just go on pretending like everything's fine because they don't hate the person. They care for the person. They're just no longer in love with them or they're bored with them or they want to move on with them, whatever it is. 
And then you get this thing, like you mentioned, that I, you know, one of the stories that I mentioned in the book, and is that the person thinks, oh my goodness, we just came, the holidays were fine, just Christmas at my family and everything was great. Something must have happened over New Year's. Or, wow, that presentation was great and they were so supportive. Were they jealous about it? Did it bring up something for them that now they're... You start to look for, well, what's the reason? The reason was just timing. So that's very confusing to people, the when of it. But the other thing that is caused by that when is that that person has spent months disengaging, emotionally planning. They've already out and they've been out for a while. And then a week after the breakup, you see them on social media and they seem to be fine. And you're devastated. How could they be fine? Even if they're the ones that triggered the breakup? Well, because they've been working on getting better from that breakup for months while they were with you. So you're just, they have a three months, three month head start. That's why they look so fine to you. But if you don't know that, feels like, oh my God, there's some, I've been living in a you know, delusion, which I thought they cared for me, but now it seems that they didn't. They did, just not enough at that point. And so finding the reason for closure is you need to have the clear idea of this is over, but the reason is not going to be sexy or satisfying. It's usually going to be they drifted. It's not the perfect match for them, the timing, the this, the that. And you have to accept that it doesn't have to be sexy or dramatic for it to be valid. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had unlimited time and energy? As you're navigating your breakup, I know your energy can feel low and it can feel really difficult to complete everything you need to in a day. When you're emotionally exhausted, it's especially important to be really clear on what your priorities are and where your energy should be invested. Therapy has helped me in the past figuring out where I should be putting my energy, whether that's career, friendships, relationships, events, which in turn has helped lower my anxiety because I don't always have to feel stretched thin or behind. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartbreak today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash heartbreak. Are you looking for a guilt-free way to unwind? Between balancing your breakup, work, and just functioning in your day-to-day life, I know you are under a lot of stress. Breakups mess with your nervous system, cause obsessive thoughts, and make it so hard to just sit with yourself. This is why it's so important to have rituals that allow you to treat yourself in a healthy way. And this is why I love Recess Mood, a sparkling water infused with functional ingredients like stress-balancing adaptogens and mood-lifting magnesium. Life has been very full and stressful for me lately, and as someone who hasn't had alcohol in a 11 years, I need something that helps me relax and that can bring me a moment of peace. Lately, my favorite way to do that is sitting on the couch after I put my kids to bed and having either the strawberry rose or the lime recess mood. They not only make me feel good, but they also taste incredible too. So whether you're looking for a healthier alternative to alcohol or a way to make you feel more balanced, you deserve a healthier way to unwind. Head to takearecess.com slash heartbreak and get 15% off recess mood, your go-to alcohol replacement. And I actually have never thought about that, how there is such a time difference and who's, you know, who's getting over it first. And I also try to tell people it's not easy to end a relationship on either side. So I think sometimes I get people who were the ones that ended the relationship and they don't understand why they're in so much 
pain over it. They think I shouldn't deserve to be in pain. I'm the one that made my ex in all this pain, but it's not easy to end the relationship. And I do think a lot of people do it with, there's obviously exceptions, but I think most people do it with a pretty large amount of care where they are, you know, trying to make sure they time it. Okay. Maybe they, you know, know that your family's close by. Like, I think there are a lot of considerations made, but I think sometimes the story's easier to make it. So they made the decision impulsively. They did it in a very mean way. They're not hurting. My whole relationship was a lie. I hear that all the time. If they're already okay, then that must mean my whole relationship was a lie. They were seeing someone when we were still together. So we make up all these stories. And I wonder if that is also a connection to wanting to validate and justify the amount of pain you're feeling. Yes, often it is. Unless you know to think about, they probably started drifting, they've probably been planning this for a while. Unless you kind of put yourself in their shoes and understand that they're in a different stage of this process than you, then it is very, very confusing. By the way, I do get a lot of people come to see me as a therapist who did the breaking up and are in a lot of pain, either because like the most common thing is that they have a lot of regret because they would really have wanted it to work. They kind of on paper, this is the, what they, something just in the chemistry didn't work for them. And it was, it was, it just didn't get it over that hump of like infatuation or full love or what, and they wanted it to. And so after they break up, they start thinking, was that a mistake? Because I really do like this person a lot. And sometimes they'll go back two, three times and the same thing will happen. They just, the oomph, that chemistry, that connection isn't there for them for whatever reasons, right? They can be chemical. They can be all kinds of different pheromones, who knows, whatever, or they're blocked for whatever reason, but they just lament it. And so they feel so upset about the heartbreak because they would have wanted it to work. Now, if their ex knows that, it doesn't make it easier for their ex to get over because their ex is like, oh, if it, if it was that close, let's keep trying. But then they keep trying, keep getting their heart broken. And so it can be very, very challenging, you know, even for the people who leave. But I try and say, if you've left once, let's just do it well thought out and don't put that person through the same thing twice or more. And it often does happen that way. Yeah. I tell people, I think the most respectful thing you can do after ending a relationship is to leave them alone. Yes. Even though people on the other side might argue with that and say, I can't believe they've never checked on me. I can't believe they didn't. The biggest one, I can't believe they didn't wish me a happy birthday. <laughs> so I, you know, there's a lot of that, but I do think the most respectful thing for someone to do is, is to, you know, simply leave them alone. And, and I, I really want to talk about this idea of the obsession because that's such a big part of, of breakups. I think, especially with social media, it adds another element that makes it a lot harder. But I think the first thing is the obsession on something that your ex said during the breakup. So I think especially when someone says, well, it's just not working for me. And they might say right now, or they might leave these little words within the breakup. And then someone will obsess on that and wait around for, for months. And, you know, even sometimes over a year, like the amount of obsessing someone does after the breakup, is that, you know, linked to the addict, like more of the letting go of an addiction kind of part, or where does this obsession come from? Well, it starts from the addiction withdrawal, right? And so, so you're withdrawing from that person. So, you know, when you're withdrawing from something, you think about it all the time. So they're thinking about them all the time. A lot of people in, in the breakup conversations will try and add some kindness. So it, they, they don't want to cause that person pain. So if they say no, 
we're done and we will never, this will never, ever, ever happen. That seems needlessly harsh. And the other person might be saying, but like, you know, do you think that we'll never, like, if this is not the right time, will it ever be the right time? And they're like, I don't know, because they don't want to say no, because they know they're trying to be kind. And so, but then they leave that little crack of, of sunlight, of hope. And so that, well, if it's not now, and sometimes people say, well, it's just not the right time for me if I met you in five years' time. There are very few people who in five years' time are going to try the same thing and miraculously it'll work this time. There's just by what's changed. So that, but they say it because they don't want to, they, they don't want to be that cruel, but you know, you're not being that kind in introducing that kind of hope or expectation either. And we can even do that without, like we can even think that, oh, they'll, they'll come to their senses. They'll, they'll, you know, give them a month or two and they'll date some other people and realize we were great. So let's just wait kind of thing. And it's a problem because it's that hope keeps you from really accepting that it's over from that closure part. And if you're not accepting that it's over, you cannot start to heal because the wound is still fresh and the wound is not going to scab over if you expect, you know, if you're still hoping that maybe it'll work out. So you're not looking forward. You're not trying to get over this person. You're trying to not. So in case they come back, you'll still be connected. That's a big mistake. And many, many, many people make it. And the obsession part is that it's in order to justify and rationalize why you're holding on, you need to have evidence, you need to have reasons, you need to have justifications. So let's, you know, comb through every utterance, every text, every phrase, everything. And if there's anything slightly ambivalent or slightly not clear, or then, all right, so here's where the hope is. They said right now, but what happens in six, I'll give them six months in your head. They, no one said six months. But they'll try and find something, and then that's really going to hold them back. And then they'll get really obsessive in trying to justify it as time goes on, because that gets harder and harder to do. Yeah, I often tell people that your ex isn't going to communicate to you in secret code. So they'll say, well, they left up the photos on their Facebook. And I'll say, they're not trying to send you a secret message. They're just living their life. Like they just probably didn't even think that they still had the pictures up or they don't know what to do about them. So you know, if that's the case, they will make it, you know, they'll communicate to you loud and clear. It's not going to be through, you know, some code that you have to find and investigate and decipher and all of those things. And what do you recommend to people who are hanging on to that hope that my ex is going to come back? I know they're going to come back and I'm not going to move on because I don't want to move on if they are going to come back. Well, my question to them would be, but if they do come back, why would it work then if it didn't work now? Like what's going to be different in two months? They're going to have gone through some kind of major psychologically, you know, altering situation that somehow made them now more able to commit when they weren't before they'll have developed this wish to settle down that they didn't quite have like a month ago, like you know, we have to remember that there are two aspects to every relationship and we tend to not pay attention to this, but there's the person and there's the actual relationship. The person is who the person is, but the relationship is how you relate to one another, how you communicate, how you treat one another, you know, what the relationship quality was like. Were you very, very connected, tied at the hip and, you know, and together all the time? Were they very communicative about their feelings? Were they never communicative about their feelings where they're able to problem solve with you and resolve conflict with you in the relationship. And often people say to me like, well, no, we never really argued. And I'm like, that's not good. Sorry. You were together for a while and you didn't argue. It means you're not addressing things. Neither you nor they. 
And if they try to and you didn't want to do that, then that's not helpful either. But in other words, and again, people do try a second time around and it's not uncommon. And what I say to couples who come to see me in my clinic when they're trying for a second time around, I say to them, unless you are super clear about what didn't work the first time and how that's going to be different the second time, you are really just going to waste your time and hurt yourselves. It is not going to have a different outcome unless you do something very differently that's meaningful and you know to do that differently because you've discussed enough to know that that was the thing that wasn't working. But in the absence of that, and that takes two people in the conversation, which is unlikely, then if they come back, you'll just try again and it just won't work again because nothing will be different. Yeah. And I think so often people do, you know, go back to exes, not necessarily out of this person adds so much value to my life, but I feel so uncomfortable without them. So therefore I should go back to them instead of, you know, looking at it from, I do, you know, I have healed, you know, I, I genuinely miss this person. I've changed. I'm going to go back. It's typically because, well, I feel like crap without them. So might as well add them back in. Or I'm just lonely and I haven't really met anyone else. And so I guess that wasn't bad. And That'll work for a little bit of time because it wasn't bad, but then you'll get to the point of, do you want to spend the rest of your life with this person? And it'll be like, well, no. And what are you doing? Yeah. And what you were talking about with, for, I think the difference between the person and the relationship, because you end up missing both things. You miss being Correct. in a relationship and then you miss the actual person. Correct. And one thing you talk about is addressing the voids that are left because, you know, if someone is just going to sit in their room and more in the relationship, it's pretty likely they're going to feel awful for a long period of time because I just say you, you become kind of a gaping hole. If you don't address any of the voids, you just feel like this gaping hole. Do you suggest that people figure out the voids left by the person and the voids left by the relationship? Or what is, you know, kind of that process of identifying the voids and then filling those? Well, even before that, one thing I suggest to people is figure out who you're really mourning? Is it the absence of the relationship or the person? For a lot of people, it's really about the relationship. They'll say, yeah, that person wasn't great, but I really enjoyed being in a relationship. I really loved the relationship part that I had someone to go to breakfast with on the weekend and didn't have to worry about who I'll go to the movie with or who I'll take to the wedding. And, and so for a lot of people, if you're really, if loss of the relationship is bigger for you than the loss of the person, then, okay, but admit that to yourself and then realize I really need to work on getting over the person because it's it's the relationship that, that held more allure for me than just the person themselves. That's almost like good news to me because it means like, okay, then let's not confuse the two. It's not that they were that amazing. It's that you really enjoyed being in the relationship. So that's important to know. The void thing is like this. You go from being a we in your sense of identity to being an I. Well, we did this for the weekend and we're doing this for the holidays. And we use this kind of toothpaste. We like these kinds of movies. Da, 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 da. Our whole identity gets changed when we get into a relationship and when we leave one, when we go to a, you know, to a we from an I and vice versa. So the idea of the voids are that there are all kinds of voids, physical, psychological, emotional, social, that are left after the relationship. For example, well, who are you going to go to breakfast with now, who's your movie buddy now? Is that the toothpaste you want to keep using? Because they brought that toothpaste into the relationship. You preferred a different one. I'm just giving the example of toothpaste because it's, it's that small. 
yeah. that these kinds of decisions are made. I sometimes will, you know, here's the thing over the past two years for therapists, Zoom is kind of fun because I get to see the apartment or the house, or well, sometimes it's the car or the toilet, but nonetheless, wherever <laughs> they're sitting. And I get to see like, oh, wow, that's a lovely picture behind you. Is that the two of you in the picture? Because that looks like a lovely, yeah, I haven't taken it down yet. Why not? Why do you want to look at that every day? You know, or I'll see just like blank spots on the wall where clearly, you know, the paint is faded around them, but not there. And I'm like, you want to replace that, whatever you took down over there. Do you know what I mean? You want to figure out like, again, what compromises did you make? And, you know, which friends did you have to let go? Which hobbies or interests did you have to seed because there wasn't enough time for them? Do you want to reconnect with those? Do you want to try those? Do you want to try new things? So the voids are many, They're from the physical ones to the emotional, the social, et cetera. And you really want to be intentional and focused on filling them because otherwise you're just going to be noticing the absence all the time. I always use the example from my breakup that my ex was the one who turned me on to hiking. So we would hike every Sunday. And I remember realizing I said, I'm mourning the loss of hiking. And I thought to myself, you know, I can still hike, but it, it is wild to me that I had to pretty consciously make that discovery of I can still go to these places either by myself or with friends. And I love the idea of taking a look at each one of those things and say, is this something I still want in my life? And it's okay if it is, and it's okay if it isn't, but I always, you know, like this idea of reclaiming certain places. I just had someone I was talking to who went to this, this hiking spot where he first asked his, the girl to be his girlfriend. And he went back with his friends and they had like, they had a whole day around it. They, you know, brought some beers and went and hung out there and he had a totally new experience at that place. So this idea of letting certain things go and then reclaiming certain things. And I think that's especially important for those that tend to really lose themselves in relationships where they do make that person their entire identity. They let go of friends. They let go of their own hobbies, all of those things. I think even then it's an even bigger opportunity to like rediscover yourself. Absolutely. I love the hiking story. I want to point one thing out about it that I think is really important of, of the person you were talking to. Somebody might just say, okay, I don't want to lose hiking. So I'm just going to go on those hikes by myself. Well, that's going to be kind of sad and that's going to be very upsetting. And if you just say, well, I'll just get a friend to go with me. Okay, a little bit better. What that person did, I'm filling in a little bit of blanks. What that person did is they ritualized it. They made it an event. They got friends. There was very intentional thought put into, we'll make it a bit of a party. We'll celebrate. I mean, that was an, a specific act of reclaiming the hike with their friends in a way that now is associated with support and with friendship and with some beers or whatever that was over there. That's the way to do it. In other words, if you're reclaiming places, don't just suffer through it to make the point that here, I can still go to this place. Go to that place and reclaim it by having different associations, by bringing your friends, by having, you know, like by doing something very intentional. Like, no, no, this is, I'm not sitting at that table. I'm going to sit at this table and I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to have, like, be thoughtful about how you do these things. That's a really good point. I think another example of someone who was living, who maybe can't move, after they lived with the ex, but, you know, mm -hmm. for whatever reason, they're still in the same place. You know what you said, redoing the walls, rearranging furniture, doing those things, and then throwing like a housewarming party. So it feels like a new party, have your friends over, treat it like it's a new 
a yeah, brand painting new place. is a great way to do that, right? Because I mean, there's one great way to change a place feel with very cheaply, comparatively, and quickly is painting the walls a different color. Bring the friends over, have a party, have a you know, we're gonna paint this person out of my walls kind of party. So you know what you're doing. There's there's an acknowledgement of what you're doing, but you're having fun while you're doing it, supposedly. I love that idea. I love that. And, you know, the last thing that I wanted to to ask you about is the highlight reel that we play of our ex. I think it's especially hard for people who are coming out of relationships where objectively the person was not great for them. Mm-hmm. What do you recommend to people who constantly have the highlight reel playing? And I think even more so they have the highlight reel of their ex and then they have their whatever the opposite of the highlight reel is for them. So they'll think about all the great things their ex did and then they'll they'll obsess about all the wrong things, quote unquote, that they did in the relationship. So first of all, how unfortunate that if you're already going through heartbreak, you have to think about your low like, you know, real yeah. and actually make yourself feel worse about yourself. You actually, your self-esteem needs to be invigorated right now, revitalized right now, rather than, rather than, you know, critiqued. The thing about the highlight reel is that's our mind kind of getting us to think about how great this drug is, but it's not. And, you know, I recommend in the, in the talk that I gave in the TED talk that people make a list of all the ways that that person was wrong for them and all the ways the relationship was wrong for them. And that you really need to refer to that list and to remind yourself not to vilify the person, not to make them out to be bad, but just to remind yourself that they weren't ideal. They weren't. And another thing I suggest just based on what we said earlier is look at that highlight reel and separate out what was them versus just being in a relationship in a great romantic place in that moment that you can substitute in any other person. And it would pretty much be a good experience as opposed to what that person brought to the table individually. But the highlight reel is just a way to keep the pain alive. It really serves no purpose because if you're just thinking over and over again through the, this was so great and now I don't have it, and this was so great and now I don't have it, as natural as it is in the first you know days and weeks after breakup, you do need to understand that that is delaying your recovery. That is just, it's like the emotional you know wound, you're just like picking at the scab over and over and over again in an inaccurate way. I've had people sit in my office who I've worked with, so I know how ambivalent they were about the entire relationship, how much they hated the person certain times, how much they were truly even disgusted by them physically at certain times, and suddenly they were the best lover ever. And I'm like, what about the time you almost vomited? Like, I remember... You know, the visceral disgust you had because of blah, 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 blah. So suddenly this is all painted over with a soft lens and, you know, and and aromatherapy. No, that's not what happened. That is so interesting, especially to have that point of view of seeing the ambivalence and then all of a sudden see the total, the complete heartbreak. And I think that's a really important thing to, to list, you know, like you said, not to vilify them, but just objectively, this is why the relationship didn't work, or this is why, you know, I'm not meant to be with this person. And I tell people too, like the reason, you know, you're not meant to be with the person is because you're not with them anymore. You know, I think people have this fear that they're losing the one, you know, that they only get one love in their entire life. And that's the person that they just lost. And that's yeah, just by definition, true. the one love is a mutual love. And if this one wasn't, they're not the one. Exactly. No longer, certainly. And by the way, there is zero research 
zero research and zero reason to think that we only have one soulmate or that we only have one person we can fall in love with. With all due respect, people aren't that unique. And, you know, there's another one of them somewhere or a different kind of person who you'll connect with on a different level. You don't need to go and replicate the exact thing because, you know, that is one thing that worked, but, you know, we grow, we change. You know how I know the person changed because they went through heartbreak. That changes you a bit too. So you're by definition, not exactly the same person. You're more resilient because you've been through something difficult. Maybe something else would appeal to you. But so to go and look for, oh, I have to replicate that same kind of person would be a mistake. I agree. Well, thank you so much, Guy, for coming on and sharing so many great insights and your wisdom. Where can the listeners connect with you, find you? I know if you haven't listened to his TED Talk, I will link that in the show notes. You also have your book, How to Fix a Broken Heart. And then you mentioned a podcast, but yeah, if you could tell us how we can connect. So you can find all stuff at guywinch.com, G-U-Y-W-I-N-C-H.com. The things I would, yes, check out the TED Talk if you haven't. There's a book as well. My uh, podcast is Live Therapy Sessions. And, you know, that's not something people tend to hear. The reason we're doing that, and let me just say quickly what we do, because it's a little, people don't quite understand that it's tricky because we choose, you know, people write to us asking for help, for advice. We choose a letter. But then once we choose the letter, we don't discuss it, my co-therapist and I, my co-host and I. So then we just read the letter to one another. We talk about it like a case consultation in a therapy room. Then we bring the person on for a live session, again, which we haven't spoken about. So we're doing it, you know, from different parts of the country. She's in LA and I'm, you know, in New York and the person can be wherever. And we're live trying to figure out where to go with this and how to, and, you know, where to take the therapy session. At the end of it, we give them actionable advice that they have to do within a week. And then they leave us a voicemail and let us know what happened and how that went. And then we do a last analysis about the outcome. The thing that always annoyed me about advice shows is that, well, okay, great. But then did they do it? What happened? Yeah, what happened? Yeah. Here you find out what happened. And we even from our first season and our second season, we did one year follow-ups. You get to find out what happened, happened. And so for people who've never been to therapy, who don't know what therapy is supposed to sound like, or who don't know why therapy is different than talking to a friend, even listening to one episode will very much clarify to you why this is not like talking To a friend, it's our way of trying to democratize therapy because no matter what the issue is, you'll learn something about yourself truly from every episode. So it's called Dear Therapists. It's available everywhere. Again, through my website, you can get that as well. And I will link all that in the show notes, but that sounds fascinating. That will be my new listen. So thank you so much again for your time. And I hope everyone checks out your podcast. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me, Kendra. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you loved it, I hope you'll leave a review and share with your friends. If you're not already following me on Instagram, head to at your breakup bestie where I'm sharing new content almost every day. To join our Facebook group, Healing Hearts Club, where you can connect with thousands of people from all over the world going through breakups, head to the link in the show notes. And don't forget to check out my online courses for more in-depth help through your healing journey. I always end these episodes the same way, reminding you to be nice to yourself, stay connected with loved ones, and the biggest reminder is that this too shall pass. I promise.